last week uh, how actually preached for us, and we took a break from this series in the book of Nehemiah. He preached an extraordinary message. You can check it out online um, uh, from the Psalms. And he- here's what I would love to do today as we kind of continue in this series in the book of Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia who had been given this call and burden from God to actually go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So he's someone with a, a whole people group that has been subjugated to oppression and exile to actually lead a group um, amidst so much oppression and difficulty and antagonism, and yet he would be called to do this work of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Now, last week we looked at, or a couple weeks ago, uh, Dave was here and he preached an, another great message on uh, this moment of celebration where worship service is done after people have given their blood, sweat, and tears. They've served to a point where now God wants to bring them together for a, a worship service. Now, check out what this worship service looks like. In Nehemiah chapter 8, from a couple weeks ago, look at what it says. Nehemiah said this to the people after the wall had been rebuilt. He says, go and enjoy. High five your neighbor. Say, go and enjoy. Not so enthusiastically, everyone. That was, <laughs> I was like, go and enjoy. Um, and choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and party, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy. High five your neighbors. Say, Great joy. That's right. Because they now understood the words that have been known to them. In other words, there's this discipline where now God is basically telling the people, hey, this is a time of celebration. And for a people who've been subjugated to exile and oppression and difficulty, this is a time to celebrate. Now, here's what's so fascinating, is immediately after this chapter, where this command is given, now's the time to to celebrate, to eat, drink, be merry, and party. Look at what it says in chapter 9. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. Now, these were traditional ways of repenting, of taking this posture of grievance and repenting. Now, it says those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. That whole passage that was read earlier, in some ways I wanted to give you a story of what are the people of Israel as they reflect on their own history. And notice what they're doing. They're confessing their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Uh, now, here's what's fascinating, right? Because in one chapter, right after the wall is rebuilt, there's this command. Now's the time to eat, drink, and be merry. Celebrate with joy. Let's party. And yet, at the same time, there's also this posture of when we come and we surround ourselves in this story, let's also spend this time in a season of repentance. Now, oftentimes, these two things, joy and repentance, they're bifurcated, and we either lean to one direction or the other. We're either all joy, and that's what the spiritual life is supposed to be about. Or we're all repentance, and this is what the spiritual life is all supposed to be about. But what we see, even in these chapters, we see an integrated life. And what maturity looks like for every single one of us is to actually be able to integrate both the joys of life and the celebrations and the command to celebrate, to eat, drink, and be merry. But also to do that while also having a posture of repentance and humility and grieving. And maturity looks like being able to integrate both of these things, not leaning one way or the other. And we see this in this passage. Now, here's what's happening. As this call for repentance is given, especially as we're looking at this theme of renewal, 
check out the way that Nehemiah is basically talking about this theme of repentance. Look at what he's going to write. Now, I'm not going to reread the entire passage for you, but check out these different themes. He says, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. He's talking about God here. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. He's hearkening back to the creation story from the book of Genesis, how God is actually the creator God of the entire universe and everything in it. And now look, he says, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You might not even be a Christian here. I want you to know, Abram was someone that was called by God in the book of Genesis. to be. A, he was blessed to be a blessing. And so basically, Nehemiah is hearkening way back to the book of Genesis, the creation story, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who called Abraham and called him out out of Ur. And look at what it says. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. Now he's talking about the narrative of what happened to Moses and the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. In their hunger, you gave them bread or manna from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. (laughs) Do you see what basically, what Nehemiah is starting to do? He's starting to share this story of what God has done. Uh, blessed, or let's go to the next slide. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. And what he's basically doing, he's talking about the story of God, his faithfulness, his greatness. But here's what ends up happening. People get arrogant, stiff-necked, and all of a sudden, instead of focusing on the story of God and the bigness of God, it becomes more about what I want and what I want to do. Now, look at as he continues. He says, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness, even though they were arrogant and even though they denied you, God. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. Now, it's talking about the story of God, how God would bring deliverance to the people, uh, through the, uh, King David, for instance, and deliverance against the Philistines. They ate to the full and were well-nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Do you see, time and time again, despite the way that people would turn away, God would be faithful and do something extraordinary. But look at what happens. But they were disobedient again. Do you notice a theme that's happening? And rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. I mean, this is what God does. He continues to be gracious and kind and compassionate. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. But guess what happens? Uh, Let's go to the next slide. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, and this is how Nehemiah closes. He says, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. This is who you are. All the way back from the book of Genesis to Exodus and so on. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, or on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you, God, have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. We're the ones who kept messing up. 
In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And basically, this entire passage is a passage where, passage where Nehemiah is trying to orient the people of God again. Hey, listen, I want you to know the story of God, that he is the one who created the universe. He's the one that led the people out of enslavement. He's the one that miracle after miracle provided for them. He's the one that provided deliverance in the midst of difficulty and against the Philistines and others. This has been who God has been for you. Now, at the same time, here's what happens. We each, when we start to live our own way, we get caught up. Instead of living according to God's ways and his story, we end up, what do we end up doing? We end up following our own paths. Now, in many ways, this is what Nehemiah is doing, what he's presenting to the people of Israel as they're repenting. And what repentance looks like is he's basically saying, hey, listen, this is what life is all about. It's that God is the center of the story. God is the center of the story. I'm not the center of the story. You're not the center of the story. The United States of America is not the center of the story. The president of the United States is not the center of the story. Fox News is not the center of the story. CNN is not the center of the story. God is the center of the story. We call this big God theology. That God, ultimately, here's what Christianity is about. It's it's, it's about God being big and above all of us. And here's what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like each one of us allowing this big God to take big God's place. And here's what inevitably happens then. It means that when I repent, I'm taking myself, who whenever, whenever I end up falling into ways of sin or not following the ways of God, is basically I end up thinking of myself as bigger than what God is. And God is basically just this companion on the journey who's maybe like this vending machine God that I can look to when I need something, some Cheetos or some chili cheese Fritos. And yet, What God is, is God is actually this big God. And what repentance looks like is for me to basically say, you know what? I need to start to humble myself and to take my rightful place in what this looks like. Why? Because God is the center of the story. Now, if God is the center of the story, here's what it means for me. It means that I need to decenter myself from being the central person in the story. That's essentially what Christianity is all about. Now, if you're not a Christian here, welcome. So glad you're here. This is what we believe. We believe that God is a big God. And because God is a big God who is gracious and compassionate, that God is the one who's worthy of our highest worship. And as a result, I am not. Now, here's what that requires for me. Now, realize this is a tough message to give in a city like New York, right? Why? Because we are all kings and queens and like, we are all people with great talent, destiny, pedigree, Uh, academic degrees, wealthy jobs, whatever it might look like. Well, here's what it means to be a Christian. It means to actually have a big God theology. To say, God, you are the center of the story. You are much bigger and greater than me, and you need to take your rightful place. That means with whatever you've come into this room with today, whatever anxieties about the future, whatever anxieties about relationships, whatever anxieties about money that you might have, really what it means is being invited to actually say, God, you are the center of the story. I am not the center of the story. Now, Richard Rohr, um, he wrote a book called Adam's Return, and in it he talks about five different truths that I've talked about in different settings here before. Five different truths that we are to embrace as we lean into spiritual maturity. And these five truths that we embrace are really a way for us to come to grips with our own humanity, with the reality that we are not gods. 
In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you are not God. <laughs> Somebody's like, what are you saying? No, what do you mean? No, just, <laughs> that's right. All of us are human beings. God is God. God, this big God, the God is the center of the earth. That's why Nehemiah keeps coming, keeps bringing them back. Listen, this is what God has done, and this is what people will do. We would consistently fail in different ways. But this is who God is. You are righteous, God. You are worthy, God. Now, what are the five truths that uh, Roar talks about for us to embrace, to lead into bigger maturity, to be a people who grow as followers of God, or to embrace these five truths that hopefully will humble us and center us, not in basically being the center or the, uh, the hero of our own story, but hopefully center us around a bigger story of how God is really the center. And what does that look like? So here's truth number one that I'd like to present to you. Uh, the truth is life is hard. Can I hear you say life is hard? In fact, high five your neighbors, say life is hard. You're like, oh, man, really, Drew? Life is hard. Yeah, life is hard. One of the things that he talks about, about if each one of us were to take a humble posture, we, we don't approach life as if it's like this gleaming Instagram profile with all the most beautiful beaches and the most beautiful food. <laughs> Which, honestly, I mean, studies have shown that people, when they spend too much time on social media, it ends up having them suffer from all sorts of depression and jealousy and difficulty. Uh, when Hal was preaching a couple of weeks ago, or last week, on comparison and the ways that comparison can really be the, the thief of joy for us. I mean, isn't it true? Like, what we think somehow, especially our media-saturated age, tries to give us this illusion that life is about, man, if you can just, if you just can get that magic bullet, then all of life will be better. Right? There's some of us who are just like, man, if I just got that job, life will be better. If I just get that promotion, life will be better. If I could just move to New Jersey, like life will be better. Okay, maybe, sorry, that may, may have been a stretch there in New Jersey, but you know, like a, maybe a suburb, a nice suburb that's proximate to the city. I mean, this is what we think, right? But the reality is, I mean, this happens all the time. And I, have, I fall so, I succumb to this all the time. I just think, if I just get that, life will be easier and things will be better and things will be easy and nice. Thank you, God, very much. In fact, we think that this is what God owes us, that life is supposed to be easy. And so we, we think, you know, we're single. We're like, man, if I could just get married. And then you got married. Just kidding. Sorry. Uh, some, some of you married folks know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> or if you're in that religion, you're like, if I could just get single. You're single. There's this belief like somehow the grass is greener on the other side. And one of the things to just, to just sent, to decenter ourselves and to just come to this conclusion. It doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what country of origin you're from. The end of the day, life is hard. And the reality of what it means to grow into maturity is to basically understand that the world that we live in is a broken, fallen world. And it's full of difficulty, thorns and thistles, as the book of Genesis says. And one of the most mature things we can do is begin to embrace this reality that life is hard. Here's truth number two. It's this. You are not important. High five your neighbor and say you are not important. High five your other neighbors, say, neither are you. 
right. Some of you are like, I thought this message was supposed to be encouraging. True. Yeah, you are not important. One of the things that Roar talks about is to, to decenter our lives from the idea that we are the center of the story is to start to embrace the fact that you are not important. I am not important. I mean, the reality is, I mean, I tend to be someone who, who thinks of myself as being more important than I am. I start to think of myself as being essential. And so as a result, the things that I get anxious about, the things I get worried about, oftentimes it's because I am the center of the story. And what will people think of me and things like that? You know, um, we have this rhythm here where our leadership has been gracious enough so that our family gets away to go on sabbatical every three years. And on one hand, I, and believe me, this is not a complaint in any way. It's a tremendous blessing to receive a sabbatical, to be able to go and to get replenished and for our family to experience renewal. But on another hand, sabbaticals are incredibly difficult. But they're, they're difficult, but they're healthy for, for me that they're difficult. The reason why is because I grew up as just kind of a workaholic, like, machine. That I just, like, I want to dive into work all the time. So here's what ends up happening, right? On sabbatical, for the first month or so, I'm just miserable. And I'm miserable because I'm constantly worried. And I'm con- thoughts like this start coming to mind. Like, oh my goodness, if I leave, like, the church is going to fall apart. Gosh, you know what? If I'm not there, people are going to wonder, like, something's going off with Drew. Like, he's, maybe he's gone off the deep end. What's going on? You know what? People are really going to miss my preaching. They never tell me that, but nonetheless, I know, I know. They're going to miss. Gosh, I realize I'm the one holding this thing together. I, if I'm not around, oh my, like, so here's what ends up happening. My thought life is just constantly like, you know what? I can't go away. I'm so important to this thing. In fact, people's spiritual lives, their nourishment is dependent on my presence. And Tina's like, get over it, dude. Come on. But it's interesting how that happens, right? Like, I, I tend to think of myself as so important. And, and so usually after a month or so, I'll connect with someone from the church, and I'll, uh, and just one of our leaders, and I'll be like, oh, so, you know, how are you doing? But I'm basically asking that question to get to the real question. So how are things going at the church? People are like, oh, it's going great. Others have stepped up. Church is really flourishing. There's a real sense of family and community. This is really amazing. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome, man. It's amazing. Praise God. Why? Because I, I just, I, I like to think of myself as being so important to what we do and to this church. And what I realize is that my ego gets so entangled with my vocation and the, and the church, in many ways, I have to leave. Why? Because I become so sucked into this idea that my identity, my sense of self-worth, my sense of significance, my sense of control, all of these things are healthy for me to detach from. Now, this is the industry that I'm part of. I'm sure that you never struggle with this, about being able to find a certain kind of self and an assurance and a letting go. But I realize isn't it true? Like, I, I started thinking about myself as being so important. At the end of the day, you are not that important. Number three, here it is. Life is hard. You are not important. Number three, you, your life is not about you. High five your neighbor and say, your life is not about you. That's right. High five your other neighbor and say, it's about the kids. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, your life is not about you. 
Uh, one of the ways that I like to illustrate this point is the first time that I was ever in a wedding was my oldest brother's wedding. And it was the first time I ever wore a tuxedo. I just never, in fact, I didn't wear suits at all. I was just kind of like, oh, wow, wearing a tuxedo now? I went straight from that to like, to wearing a tuxedo. This is amazing. So it's the first time wearing a bow tie. First time, like cufflinks, never had heard of them or seen them before. But here I was like putting on this tuxedo and I'm getting ready for the wedding. And I'm just, I'm kind of nervous because I'm like, this is the first wedding I've been part of. Now keep in mind, this is with my oldest brother and I'm last. So I'm the fourth so even in the line, I'm not even the best man, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm basically just, I'm the fourth guy. And so here I was, like, I was so anxious and nervous. I'm trying on the tuxedo. And as we're getting ready, like, all the grooms are just hanging out with my brother who's get, about to get married. And I've just got this nervous energy about me. But I'm a groomsman, right? So here I am, and I just keep checking myself in the mirror. I'm like, oh, does this bow tie look okay? And I must have done that so many times, maybe it was like 15 times in like an hour or something, that uh, one of the other groomsmen, who was like an older brother figure who had been in weddings before, he came up to me, he's just like, hey, hey, can we talk real quick? I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally. And he's like, he's like, hey, listen, I noticed that you're like super nervous right now. You keep, you keep looking in the mirror, checking like your tux. And uh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I just, I want to make sure, this is my first time wearing a tux. And he goes, hey, I just want you to know something. No one cares how you look, man. Like, did you notice, like, all of us, we're all wearing the same thing. No, one can, no one's even going to remember what you look like. In, in fact, no one's even going to remember how your, your brother, Stefan, who's getting married, no one's even going to remember how, what he looks like. They're only going to remember the bride. So listen, hey, I just, listen, out of just because I love you, this wedding is not about you, man. You're like the fourth groomsman. <laughs> Just forget it. And I was like, so you're saying I look okay right now? <laughs> Just, I mean, isn't it true, though? Right? Like, but here's what happened, right? After he said that to me, like, it was almost like, oh, like this weight was lifted off my shoulders. Like, there was almost this freedom of, like, you're right. It's not about me. And yet so much of my ego and my pride ends up wanting life to be about me. And part of what repentance looks like before God is decentering myself from this story and realizing this is God's story. And God is the one who's great. And God is the one that I serve. Uh, truth number four that we're to embrace is you are not in control. High five your neighbor and say you are not in control. High five your other neighbor and say neither are you. You know what's fascinating is, like, we live in the most technologically savvy age of human history. In the wealthiest nation, and yet, mental health issues and anxiety and depression are at an all-time high. There's something about how even technological advancement, hyper-efficient work methods and tools has somehow not led us to a much more peaceful and tranquil state of life. Isn't that stunning? You know, I, and believe me, I'm someone who likes to be in control of things. I like to, to map out strategies and organize and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's amazing how actually just starting to accept this truth that I am not in control is one of the most difficult things for me to do and yet it can be, it's, it's, if, I, if I can actually begin to embrace this, 
then true transformation is possible into true maturity. Uh, gosh, I'll never forget during the pandemic, uh, March, uh, it was right before everything shut down, which I believe was around March 15th uh, in the pandemic here in the city. And it was a really difficult time, but I remember we had just, at the time, we had started, restarted a new church in Chelsea, and we'd been through a difficult season, but we, I had set up all these plans and projections and timelines uh, for our new church that we were starting and so I remember we had a town hall. I think it was like on March 8th, 2020. So it was a week before everything shut down. We had this town hall. And I remember just outlining all the projections for the future and just basically saying, guys, in the next six months, we're going to start this new church community. It's going to be amazing. Um, and I, I used this phrase. I said, guys, the worst is behind us. We've got a glorious future. Blue skies. And then COVID hit. <laughs> Uh, and the city was in shambles. And if you were around during that season, it was one of the most difficult, darkest times of our city's history, as well as in the world. There was death and sadness and illness. And so a few months later, uh, you know, the city had somewhat rebounded. We were kind of like, like just the beginning stages of having hope again. And I remember people that were part of that initial group, because a bunch of people ended up moving out of the city. Like, uh, like some folks, they were like, hey, Drew, do you remember that one vision gathering you hosted right before COVID? I was like, oh, no, what do, what do you mean? And they said, do, do you remember you said, like, the worst is behind us? Do you remember that? And I was like, oh, I sort of remember. And they were like, yeah, don't ever say that again, because we don't ever believe you. Ugh. <laughs> oh. Just my need for control and wanting to think that I have everything in control. Maybe some of us, maybe the source of our anxiety is our control freak tendencies. We want to know projections and we want to control people and we want to control whatever it might be. And what, it, what does it look like for us just to release control? To have a posture of prayerful, decentering of ourselves and saying, God, you are the one who holds all things together, as it talks about in the book of Colossians. Uh, truth number five, you are going to die. High five your neighbor and say, you are going to die. That's right, you are going to die. Uh, some of you are like, I hate this message. Um, yep. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Like, we're all going to die one day. Don't know when, but all of us, human history, all of us are going to die one day. And one of the things that Rohr talks about is that all of us are human beings. What it means is that we all go into the dirt one day. Now, if you think about it, like, I, there are some people that I think of as, like, superhuman, larger than life. Like LeBron James or people that I just, I look up to and I'm just like, oh, those people, they can go on forever. And yet, even they're going to die one day. Every single one of us will die one day. Now, one of the things Rohr talks about, about growing into deeper maturity, about being able to decenter ourselves from the story of what's happening in the world, that deeper maturity comes from this realization that I'm going to die one day, that I am a human being just like everyone else who's not in control. Life is not about me. I'm not that important. Life is hard. And I'm going to die one day. 
Now, here's what's stunning about that, right? Because on, uh, like, on some level, I could say, like, hey, you're going to die one day, and each one of us are just like, ah, oh, that's so discouraging. What are you talking about? But in a way, do you see how there's freedom on the other side of really embracing this truth? Because when I'm able to fully embrace the reality of my own mortality, the reality that, wow, it's not my story that goes on forever. And here's the thing about Christianity. We believe that Jesus has come, and he died, but he resurrected. And he lives. And so while I might go into the ground, my name, my life might be irrelevant relative to the story of God, there's only one name that lasts forever. There's only one God who goes on. And what Nehemiah is doing is he's trying to center the people of Israel. He's like, don't you see, like, we need to repent because it's been God's story, his faithfulness. But of course, the people would continue to fall short. They would continue to be stiff-necked in different ways. And this is why Jesus has come. Because where Israel would fail to trust in this God, Jesus would actually come and not fail. But instead of Jesus basically arrogantly, basically saying, like, ah, look at what I've done. And instead what he does is he gives his life away. He lays his life down. He dies on the cross. And he resurrects from the grave. Why? To show us that he's a God that invites us to a life of death and resurrection. That for every one of us, what's on the other side from all the anxieties and all the ways in which we become the center of our own stories, the way that we can actually find true freedom and life and purpose and meaning and hope is to decenter our lives and to have God be the center again. This is why, this is what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 9. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. I mean, isn't it true? You don't even have to be that old to realize, especially in a town like this, in a city like this, so much of it is about finding your life, striving, getting that career, getting that promotion, getting that relationship, and whatever it might be, and trying to do this on our own willpower and strength. But you've probably been there before. Whether you're religious or you're irreligious, you've probably been there before where that striving, that looking to find my life, what it just leads to, is losing it. Isn't this profound? The wisdom of Jesus for centuries, with all the technological advancement that has come in the, the 2,000 years that have come since Jesus was alive. And yet it's so true. This wisdom so rings true. Those who try to find their life will actually lose it. But look at what he says. Whoever loses their life for my sake will what? Will find it. How will they find it? It's because when we begin to decenter ourselves from the story and we make God the center, we realize we can now live with the freedom, a purposefulness, a joy, a power that only comes from a life that's resting in a God outside of myself, in a God who is loving, who has demonstrated through the person of Jesus that he has died and rose again. And as a result, the rat race that we find ourselves on, when we can, when we can release it to God, we can actually trust that this is a God who loves us and cares for us. And we can live with a freedom that only comes from putting our trust in him. Now, this takes extraordinary repentance. What Nehemiah is trying to do, he's trying to paint this picture of like, do you see how big God is? Will you let God be big again in your life? When it comes to your finances, will you let God be big again? You can just be removed from the centering of your life, that the kind of the idol of money that exists, or your career or this relationship, or whatever it might be, will you let God be 
big again? Would you repent before him? Would you find yourself yearning and longing for being part of the story of God?